0: Hello, this is Rabbi Rob Doberson, and welcome to this edition of Wrestling and Dreaming. While I was thinking about how to present the topic that I want to use this week in the podcast, a song came into my head, a song that I hadn't thought of probably for about 15 or years, or maybe a little bit more than that. I'm not going to quote from the song. I'm not going to play the song for you because, quite frankly and honestly, it chokes me up every time I try to read its words. So instead, I'm just going to ask you, if you've never heard this song, to go to YouTube or go someplace online and find the song by a songwriter named Mark Cohn, C-O-H-N. And the song is called The Things We've Handed Down. Just thinking about it, uh, my voice cracks a little bit. Uh, I just... It it is amazing, and and an incredibly emotional song that touches me deeply, and uh, I I hope that uh, you'll take the opportunity to listen to it, uh, maybe have some Kleenex nearby. So now let me get into the topic that I want to discuss today, and what made me think of this song, which is about the things we hand down to the generations to come. Uh, my grandfather, Julius Doberson. I never met him. He died years before I was born. A lot of things that could be said about him. Very unusual character, to say the least, from what I hear. But what I want to concentrate on today is the fact that he was a builder. He was a carpenter and a uh, contractor and built homes. He must have been pretty good at what he did because we've seen houses that he built which are still standing in Lynn, Massachusetts even after probably close to or a little bit more than 100 years. I'm fascinated by genetics and how things are passed down from one generation to the next. Well, somehow, the skills that he had, the talents that he had in this area, didn't find their way into my generation, at least not to me. Maybe to some of my cousins, perhaps, but not to me. Because uh, building things and understanding the, the way in which things are built is something that escapes me entirely. My father, Allah, Shalom, would often say, "If his if his father saw the way I handed a hammer and handled a hammer and a nail, uh, he would just be be he would roll over in his grave." That's what my father used to say. Uh, and and it's not that I haven't tried. Uh, And I'm getting better at certain things. I can hang pictures pretty well now, but there are a lot of things that most people are able to do that I just can't do. And I have plenty of talents in other areas, as everyone does, but there are also things we need to know that we can't do. And this is one of those things that I have never been able to do. And so whatever Grandpa Doberson could do, he didn't pass down to this grandson, at least, the ability to Handle tools and to understand design and construction. And all of that is a means to introduce the fact that when we come to this week's Torah portion, a parshat truma, and the four portions which will follow, which deal with the construction of the mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert, I haven't got the slightest idea what's going on. Uh, and I mean that seriously. I read them and the words just, 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 my eyes glaze over and the words just escape me entirely. I cannot figure out what is going on. This mishkan, this traveling sanctuary, which the people built and then folded up and carried with them, according to the Torah, in the journeys to Canaan, fascinating, but I don't understand any of it. So what do I do? Well, I don't understand the specifics, but I can take a step back and think about conceptually what this mishkan might have been, as many of the rabbis did. Many of the rabbis didn't get involved in the nitty-gritty of what was connected to what and how it was connected, but thought about the Mishkan from a distance, so to speak, and, and an overall concept. Why was the Mishkan, this traveling sanctuary, built? Why did they need it? And so I'd like to offer you three different approaches that many of the rabbis used in our tradition to think about this Mishkan, but don't think about these as three separate ideas. They all come together, come together to give us a bigger picture of what this project was about and why the Torah might have dedicated five Parshiot to it. First of all, this was a communal project. It began, according to this week's Torah portion, with the taking of voluntary contributions from people within. The Jewish, within the Hebrew community, now, uh, what that meant at the time, uh, we don't know. But we know that people contributed to this out of a willingness of heart. It says in the Torah portion called Nadiv Libo everybody who whose heart was willing, gave a contribution. There were other times where. Taxes, so to speak, were placed upon the people. The half shekel, which was given as a kind of a census, as well as collecting money, but this was a voluntary. Whoever gave, gave gave because they wanted to give. So first of all, this is a communal project that people buy into, which is so important for any community. Secondly, the Torah says that God says to Moses, asuli mikdash v'shachanti betocham, they will build me a sanctuary, and I will dwell within them. And I emphasize the word them, it does not say I will dwell within it, because we don't have the idea of God needing a home to dwell within, but I will dwell within the people, which led the rabbis to come to the conclusion that one of the purposes of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was in fact to be a visible reminder of God's presence in the community. The people were worshiping a God which who could not be seen. Let's go back to the Torah and say they heard God's voice at Sinai. They saw the experience at Mount Sinai, but they need to know that God is still within the community. and They need to know where to focus their attention to know that God is still within the community. And then the tabernacle is built to give the people something to look at, something to see. They can't see God's presence, but they can see this sanctuary which houses in some way the presence of God. Now, I just said that God doesn't need a house to live in, but at the same time, the Torah does give the impression that the shekhinah the God's presence, uh, somehow rests within this tabernacle. And what it does is it takes the idea of a transcendent God beyond us in the heavens, and everywhere in the world and makes it more localized, makes the presence of God more localized so the people can sense their connection with it. This uh, idea goes along with the rabbinic idea that there's that the stories in the Torah are not told in chronological order. and that we should look at the story of the golden calf, which comes actually in the middle of the story of the construction of the tabernacle, in fact as having taken place before, And the people's lack of a focus, lack of a a sense that God was with them caused them to build the golden calf. And according to many of the rabbinic ideas, the tabernacle was an acknowledgement that the people needed a physical symbol of the presence of God, not to worship as they might have done with the golden calf, but instead to at least focus their attention in a particular direction. Third idea. That this tabernacle, which was symmetrical, which was beautiful and included jewels uh, and, and, and precious stones and Sahav, Khesef and gold, silver and, and 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 other metals would in fact somehow, according to many of the rabbis, be a in essence a microcosm of the perfection of the universe that God has created that somehow just like our universe in, in picture created by God fits together perfectly, so to speak, with balance and symmetry, so does in fact this tabernacle reflect that with its balance and symmetry. And that somehow it is, expresses a yearning to turn the community, to turn the world into a place again of perfection and of beauty to return it to its state at the time of creation so that the idea of the tabernacle is to present this image of beauty and this image of balance and symmetry which will lead us to seek that in our lives and in the world now how did it come to that i how did the rabbis come to that idea well, one thing is that when the tabernacle was completed, there was a seven-day celebration of its completion, reminder of the seven days of creation. And the people and expressed the satisfaction at what they've created, just as God said to make a separation was uh, satisfied with the creation of the world, saying that everything was very good. So this idea somehow that this perfectly fitting together building which could be folded up and then unfolded and was a place again of perfect balance was somehow a reflection of what we hoped for achieving within the world. So those are three ways to look at this this tabernacle. The idea of it being a communal project, the idea that it gave people a focus to know of God's presence within the community, and a reflection of the Ideal world that hopefully people will build. It's something to think about, and I urge you, uh, if you're going to look at this week's Torah portions and the weeks to come, if you're fascinated with building, if you have the that 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 knack like my grandfather apparently did, you'll you'll find it fascinating. But if you don't and you get lost in the details like I do, take a step back, read some of the commentaries in the Chumash, think about what this building was meant to be and what it was meant to achieve. And maybe it will give meaning beyond the very specifics of of the building project, which really occupies our mind for the next few weeks in the Torah portion. And again, don't forget, don't forget to go someplace online and find Mark Cohn, C-O-H-N, the things we've handed down. And uh, as I say, prepare for something very emotional, because it will strike you as a way to think about what things we've handed down. Until next time, thank you.